You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. In a field where we live by the motto to do no harm, in treating the patient in front of us, we create this mountain of trash and the incineration of that trash can put pollutants into the air, which literally make our patients sicker. We have a special duty in healthcare to reduce emissions and to reduce waste because it's not doing right by our patients, it is doing them harm. That's Daniel Vukalic. I talked to Dan because this month is Plastic Free July, and Dan is the guru of waste reduction in healthcare. So right now we'll talk about that, and then later we'll have a deep dive with Amol Navathi on value-based care and how organizations should redesign provider incentives. But first, let's talk about trash. You've heard me say that podnosis is the pulse of the healthcare industry. So how could I let Plastic Free July pass by without addressing the mountains of trash the healthcare industry creates because of single-use medical devices? Just to put it into perspective, U.S. hospitals generate about 6 million tons of waste each year. Picture an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Now fill that with trash 2,400 times. Where does all that trash go? Not all of it is plastic. About 25% is. And nearly all of the plastic waste, well, about 91% of it, winds up in landfills, or worse, the natural environment. So I talked with Daniel Vukulich, the president at the Association of Medical Device Reprocessors, about what we can do about our trash problem. And here's how it went. Hi, Dan. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. And congratulations on winning Activist of the Year this year at the Reusies. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. There is the classic three R's of recycling, reduce, reuse, recycle. I last year did a story for NPR on a fourth R, which is recirculation. And then there's refuse, reclaim, repurpose. But your work involves yet another R, reprocessed. So what makes reprocessing different from reuse? Well, we have to meet in the U.S. FDA's standards for any medical device. And so we have to demonstrate, in addition to cleaning and sterilization and testing, um, that we meet all the same requirements as if the device was new. Um, Reprocessing is a regulatory term of art by FDA regulations. What we do is reprocessing. But for people not familiar with reprocessing, a word that we use in Europe that might be more appropriate is remanufacture. Um, Because we're manufacturing, we're just manufacturing with the materials of a previously used device to make a new device. Mm -hmm. But it's not recycling, which is also using materials of an old device. No, and I'm glad you asked, because let me tell you some things I have learned in the last several years. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess in the environmental community, there's a a typically well-known concept of the waste hierarchy. And this is new to me in the last several years. And so it's preferable to reduce our consumption Mm -hmm. of things first to reduce emissions and waste, then to reuse, and then further down the line would be recycle. And there's a lot of data now coming out about how really uh, not really perfect recycling is as a solution, very small percentages of purportedly recyclable things are actually recycled. It ends up being particularly carbon intensive and there's a lack of a lot of secondary markets for these materials. So we want to promote 
reuse. And the form of reuse that, that I'm promoting is medical device reprocessing. Yeah. And the obvious benefit to reprocessing is that we reduce plastic waste. Well, actually, a better way maybe to say that is that we produce less waste. But when we move from a take-and-toss economy to a circular supply chain, what are the other tangential benefits? Yeah, well, the the other thing that I never dreamed in my 23 years of doing this would be that we would have supply chain shortages for desperately needed medical devices. And if we don't learn the lessons from COVID, you know, shame on us. We sent our healthcare professionals in to fight a global respiratory plague with insufficient PPE and America being the richest country on earth. I mean, this is a sin. And so one of the lessons we, I think, need to take from COVID is we need to build resilience into our supply chains. We need to make sure that we're in a position of never being without these products again. So that might mean expanding the use of reusables over disposables and reprocessing of medical devices whenever possible. So in addition to obviously the waste issue, resilience has been very important and a key reason that healthcare professionals would tap into FDA regulated reprocessing programs. But the other element would be emissions. And everybody talks about lower emissions and the world is committing to these net zero commitments but how are we going to get there? And we have to measure it. And we've conducted a number of life cycle assessments of a reprocessed medical device versus buying a new one and just disposing of it after one use. And by and large, for the eight different products that we looked at, we're at about the 50% point less reductions in carbon uh, for carbon by reprocessing these devices than buying new. And I think the more of this information that gets out there, it's less wasteful, it's less costly, it builds more resilience, and the more data we're getting showing how much less carbon intensive it is, I think more circular business models within healthcare are going to emerge and more products uh, will be reprocessed by professional commercial medical device reprocessors rather than just thrown away ones. And when you talk about reprocessing medical devices, and I've read some of your articles, you, you still re- refer to them as single-use devices. Would, why would you still call them single-use? Yeah, so the, the benefit of this is the devices are complicated enough or difficult enough to clean that they shouldn't be done in a healthcare institution. And so mm-hmm. if FDA clears or approves a medical device maker to sell a device as reusable, it's thought that should be cleaned in the basement of the hospitals in the central sterile department. By approving it or clearing it as for single use, it tells the healthcare professional, don't use this on another patient, but it can go into a bin and sent to an FDA-regulated commercial reprocessor. Manufacturers have been able to sort of enforce this single-use designation by labeling it for more and more products because they make more money. The more units sold, the more money they can make. Mm -hmm. I think reprocessing's business model is more aligned with healthcare providers, with hospitals. Right. And so can you just kind of step back for a moment and in a nutshell, paint a picture of reprocessing for me, like the logistics behind it, kind of touching on a few things how much single-use hospital devices are reprocessed and how it's done? Sure, absolutely. So there are three sort of categories of devices that would typically be collected at a hospital or a surgical center for commercial reprocessing. The first category I would call patient care. And these are things that most patients would be familiar with. The pulse oximeter sensor that goes on your finger, the blood pressure Mm -hmm. cuff that's on your arm. This is what we're doing the most of. The second category is surgical. Um, As most people know, there's an increasing trend over the last several decades to do surgery minimally invasively or laparoscopically. And those devices are made by the original manufacturer to be pretty intricate. And so it requires 
the expertise of professional reprocessing firms who have validated ways to disassemble these products, clean them and every component, reassemble them, replace parts and send them back. And then the third area, but where there's the most savings opportunity, I think, is in a hospital's electrophysiology lab. This is a cardiac department where they will thread a diagnostic cardiac catheter in through the veins into the heart. And these devices, which are labeled by the original manufacturers for single use, can cost up to $2,000 a piece. Uh, and they have rare earth metals in them. And so it, it seems really wasteful that we would throw away those assets after just one use. So anyway, in short, each of those device types would be collected in certain types of bins for the type of product that they are. They're sent to the commercial reprocessor. This firm is regulated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, but it's a basic decontamination. We track or trace every single device, either through a QR code or a barcode. They're cleaned, they are tested, they are packaged, they're sterilized. And once the sterilization process has proven effective, they're shipped back to the hospital. Some of the devices you mentioned, I'm trying to picture them in my head, aren't, aren't just plastic. They're other materials as well. Yeah, metal. I think it would surprise people to know that all of those, well, not all of those, many of those stainless steel saw blades, bits, burrs, uh, arthroscopic shavers are metal and are supposedly to be thrown out after one use. Uh-huh. Wow. So why isn't there more of this? Are, what are the hurdles? Are there regulatory hurdles or other barriers? Yeah, why isn't there more of this? This is my life's work. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're trying really hard. There, There is naturally a, a difficulty in embracing reprocessing or a circular business model because it's circular. There's a hundred different ways a reprocessing program can fall apart. Maybe there's too many bins in the OR. There's a recycling and there's a reprocessing or and it becomes difficult and people may not put it in the right bin. People might not be trained. Um, you might have a, somebody who feels that this isn't the right thing to do and actually sabotage a program. Um, a, a reprocessing program leader at a facility may retire or take a job elsewhere. And so um, there's a lot of different places where, uh, or pressure points where, where things sort of fall apart. And so it requires constant vigilance in order to keep a reprocessing program going and successful in order to maximize those benefits. But I do think it's the future. The, the current trajectory we're on is not sustainable. It is not financially sustainable. It is not environmentally sustainable. And certainly from an emission standpoint and a resilience standpoint, it's just not smart to be throwing away all of these medical assets after just one use. I mean, we're outsourcing all of these jobs to manufacture these materials outside of the US. We use these things just once and then we've basically imported trash and the trash becomes our problem. And that's not sustainable. And so uh, I think circularity will be the future. And as an example of it, you know, GE and Rolls-Royce don't sell aircraft engines anymore. They sell aircraft engine hours. So it's more of a service model, right. which is akin to the circular model that we have in healthcare. I don't think the future will be in requiring hospitals to purchase vast amounts of things you know, in order to get a discount because it's just not sustainable. I think the future will be in building better product that lasts longer and is subject to a servicization sort of business model to keep products alive longer and maximize their value. And what about the VA hospitals? I read that the VA hospitals have an anti-reprocessing policy. Which yeah, makes in fact, they're the, the VA- they're the only one. We're in every integrated delivery network in America, including all of DOD acute care facilities. 
but we're not within the Veterans Health Administration. And this is a real shame because the VHA, like many other hospitals in America, was really feeling the pinch when there were shortages and continues to feel the right. pinch for microchip devices. And so but there must you know, be a reason they've chosen to have this anti-reprocessing policy. Yeah, they've well, it's been on the books for 20 years, and unfortunately, they haven't updated their their policy on this to acknowledge that mm-hmm. FDA has been regulating this now since 2000. And so I think their attitude was, well, reprocess, that sounds second best, and we don't want to subject uh, our veterans to second care health, uh, you know, health care. And that's obviously not true. Uh, FDA clears our products, and we are as safe and effective as any other, but we have all these other benefits that will benefit our our veterans and that it lowers the cost, which allows us to expand care. It reduces waste. It reduces waste hauling costs, which frees up more resources at the VA for other things, not to mention less emissions and the supply chain resilience. And there's also just the point that um, for those patients in the healthcare system, for, for many of them, this is just important to them, close to their yeah. heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... You know, in the early days, the original equipment manufacturers that opposed reprocessing would sort of tap into this yuck factor. Like, did you know they're reusing a device that was used in somebody else? And that was effective because people thought, oh, yuck, that doesn't seem right. But we've all eaten at a restaurant. Those forks and spoons have been in other people's mouths. And I assure you, they have been subject to far less cleaning regimen than what we're putting these medical devices through. So... I think people are becoming wiser to that. And certainly the younger generation is much more keen in the clinical community, in my opinion, is much more keenly interested in how emitting are the choices I'm making to the environment. And I, and I appreciate the growing interest in these concerns. And I think that only stands to benefit reprocessing as, you know, as a key circular economy solution that I think will be the roadmap for the future of medtech. So when we talk about reprocessing, let's just think about plastics for a second. We can all agree that plastics is a material that has a lot of great qualities mm-hmm. that other materials don't have. It can be mm-hmm. endless in size and shape. It's It can be uh, flexible or it can be stiff. It can be cheap and really lightweight. But ultimately, plastic has an end to its life. And then at that point, it stays in the environment for a long time. It ends up in oceans oh. or landfills or incinerators. And all of that impacts the environment. So what are your thoughts on alternative materials? Like where could aluminum stainless or even bio-based compostable plastics, like something made from corn or mushrooms, meet these requirements and needs at a hospital? Yeah, well, once upon a time, everything in healthcare was reused because it was made out of metal or glass. And Mm -hmm. the advent of plastics has been great in that we could move to disposable options. Um, But in my opinion, the pendulum has swung way too hard towards disposability. And for some of those products, you know, perhaps we can move back to materials that can be more easily cleaned and reused. But as you said, you know, plastic for all its problems is still very beneficial to MedTech because we do want these disposable products. I just think to, to max them out after one use is really irresponsible. We really need to be maxing the lifespan of these devices. And so that may mean using um, higher quality, longer lasting, more durable plastics that lasts for 50 uses instead of one or, or, mm-hmm. or five. And so um, there will always be a place for plastic. I'm with you in that we would certainly want to reduce wherever possible. Um, but acknowledging that some of these minimally invasive devices are made in such a way that it just requires plastic. Can you tell me a little bit about the hurdle of maybe convincing a sector as traditional and conservative as healthcare? 
to pay more for something like this, even if it's better for the planet? What can help convince the sector to make this transition? Well, the good news I have there is reprocessing actually costs less. It could be 30 to 40% less because we're not having to tap into this global supply chain and extract from the earth all of these materials you know, and, and start from scratch at every turn. In fact, I once read a headline that said, if your sustainability initiatives are costing you more, you're doing it wrong. Yes, and I think but that's doesn't, true. Doesn't it depend on where the materials market is at that moment? And it kind of ebbs and flows. Like sometimes virgin glass is cheaper than recycled glass and vice versa. It kind of goes back and forth a little bit. Well, perhaps. And, you know, keep in mind in the reprocessing industry, though, all of the materials that we're using are recoverable medical devices. So we're only looking at for an aftermarket when they have totally reached the, their end of life. True. Okay. So not, not recycling, right? That's where right. I was <clears throat> mentally going. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but um, I do think in healthcare, if we stop looking at costs and the books on just a quarterly basis or even a year basis and look at these long term investments, there are many examples like reprocessing or moving to reusable where it is far less expensive over time. It is far less expensive over time to buy reusable drapes and gowns than disposable drapes and gowns. There are countless life cycle assessments that show this. And yet American healthcare facilities still tap in to disposable drapes and gowns because they, they have this belief is single use is safer. There will always be an endless supply. It's cheaper. It's only cheaper if you look at it on a per annum basis. But if you spread out the costs uh, over, over several years, it's, it isn't cheaper. Right. It's actually more expensive to be disposable. So, you know, I mentioned possibly a hurdle of convincing this traditional sector to make this change. And the example I gave was price. Is it then just a matter of showing them, you know, the cost over time? Just And then is it easy for them to convince them? Or are there any hurdles to convincing people to make well, this change? Yeah, I don't think there's much difficulty convincing people on the merits of reprocessing anymore. It's the compliance, you know, making sure that these mm-hmm. programs don't fall apart. Yeah. Before my work focused on covering the healthcare industry, I was covering the carbon market in depth. And I think what could make conceptually the carbon market work, and, and I say conceptually because we aren't there yet, is that there's a level of carbon on the that the planet can tolerate. And we're yeah. operating well beyond that, but there is a point of equilibrium. And once yeah. we reach that, we can maintain it by reducing emissions in some areas and with alternative energies or sequestering carbon, which frees up options for another company to be more flexible with their carbon emissions. But yeah. I don't think there is a point of equilibrium for plastics in the environment. How do you feel yeah. about that? Is that true? And what then would be the vision or your vision for a plastic market? Well, I don't know that I, I'm smart enough to have an opinion on that first question. <laughs> um, but as to the second, I, I guess acknowledging that plastics will always have a role, you know, our first duty in the reprocessing industry would be to maximize those number of uses you get out of it before we sort of have to uh, retire them. The second thing is, you know, we always have to do better because we're a sustainable sort of segment of the larger med tech or healthcare industry. Our customers expect us to do better. So when devices have reached end of life, you know, we strip out the metals and we strip out the rare earth materials or the gold or the platinum. And there are secondary markets for that, which is which is easy. Plastic is harder. We, we're always looking for alternative end of life options for the plastics that we're accumulating because as the collective reprocessors for nearly every hospital in America, we have a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, the healthcare sector especially has an exceptionally outsized environmental footprint. It um, accounts for about 8.5 of all greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and yeah. about 4.5 of worldwide emissions. And for context, nationally, that is significantly more than the aviation industry, which nobody yeah. ever really thinks about it like that. Yeah. And um, for an industry that's supposed to first do no harm, that's a real problem. Indeed. We've read about a lot of efforts. There's a lot of attention on this lately, and we've read about efforts to reduce emissions and pollution. And I would say that some of them seem more symbolic than anything, like uh, meatless options in the cafeteria or mm. sustainable laundry options, just basic recycling programs. But some hospitals are making big claims, like even being totally carbon neutral. And so how do we hold hospitals accountable for sustainability pledges? What can we do for tracking and reporting this progress? Yeah, this this is a keen area of interest for us. Uh, we have a special duty in healthcare to reduce emissions and to reduce waste because it's not doing right by our patients. It is doing them harm. I think the, there's health affairs data from 2020 that estimates we lose 388,000 disability adjusted life years in the United States each year because of the emissions um, associated from healthcare alone. And that's not acceptable. So um, I think this is the type of information and this is the type of data that is coming out now that is really forcing healthcare to sort of wrestle with this. As to greenwashing or you know, measuring what it is we're doing, the, the you know, of scope one, scope two, and three, either the direct emissions, the indirect, or the supply chain emissions associated with a hospital, for instance. In the US, 82% of healthcare's emissions are coming from scope three or the supply chains that they have to tap into for the medical devices, the drugs, the supplies that they use. So I think to your prior example, you know, a hospital recycling is great. A hospital turning its fuel burning fleet into an electric fleet is great. Solar panels on the roof is great. I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from doing any of that. But if we wanted to do something more impactful and immediate, we need to focus on the supply chain, which means we have to look at all that stuff that we buy. And so if, if we can remove from disposable to reusable, that is most ideal. And secondly, we, if not reusable, we should be maximizing reprocessable product because we can deliver measurable results in carbon reduction. And I think manufacturers should be expected to do the life cycle assessments to quantify what that carbon reduction would be um, for reprocessing over new or, or for whatever the comparable product would be. I would hold reprocessing out as a let's start here, low hanging fruit, immediate solution. But I think it will then spiral. And so a continued attention to push sustainability managers within healthcare or support them within healthcare institutions um, will lead to choosing reusable products over disposable. And then that will snowball in my mind and put more pressure on manufacturers to quit pushing all this non-reprocessable, non-reusable equipment and greater demands of med tech to provide reusable or more value-based products, I think will result in, in making better, longer lasting, more valuable products that are less emitting, less wasteful, um, and frankly, more reliant. Yeah, this has been really interesting. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's nice talking to you. You've got a pencil handy? Because you'll want to jot this down. Nominations for Fierce Healthcare's list of most influential minority executives is about to close. You've got until the end of July to submit your nomination. 
Our most influential minority executives list honors 10 leaders across the healthcare industry. Nominations must be in by July 28th. To submit your nomination, go to FierceHealthcare.com, and I'll put the link in our show notes. More and more U.S. healthcare systems are shifting to value-based care. That's an approach that financially rewards providers based on the quality of care they provide, rather than the volume of services they perform. Value-based care can incentivize better, more affordable care for patients and payers. But things are slowly moving in that direction, and widespread adoption of value-based care, it really remains to be seen. Some experts advocate for the use of behavioral economics principles to design incentives that encourage best behavior in providers. Some of these principles help organizations understand human psychology and ultimately ways to improve existing habits and protocols. Amol Navathi is the co-director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. He sat down with Anastasia Gletkovskia to talk about how behavioral economics can help improve health outcomes and lower costs. Here they are. Amol, I'm really excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for making the time. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think, um, myself included, many people have heard of behavioral economics, but they might not really understand what that means or what it implies. I understand it as the study of psychology that drives economic decisions in people and institutions, right? So can you talk about how you see this as applying to healthcare specifically? Sure. So I think your definition is dead on. It's exactly right. So we as humans make decisions, uh, usually as rationally as we can, I suppose. But the reality is that we don't make decisions all the time in a purely rational way. And that's because rationality, especially from the economics discipline perspective, requires us to do a lot of things that are very hard to do. So for example, we need to know all the information that's out there we need to have all the time in the world to do whatever research we have and, and we need to do and not have any conflicting priorities or competing priorities. And so that's not reality, right? And so at the end of the day, what behavioral economics has become is really a study of the types of shortcuts, heuristics, uh, decision errors that, that humans tend to make in trying to navigate real life. So this is where psychology meets economics, as you say, exactly. And, uh, and it applies to healthcare because healthcare is fundamentally a human endeavor. And by that, I mean, it's about patients who are humans, but it's also about clinicians who are also humans, at least so far so good. Who knows what the, the advent of artificial <laughs> intelligence. But, in, uh, but from that perspective, the same types of heuristics or mental shortcuts that we might use in making decisions about which soup to buy when we're facing a grocery aisle, we may use the same types of heuristics to try to figure out whether we should exercise or what we should do to exercise, uh, what food choice to make, or if you're a clinician, what antibiotic to prescribe or what chemotherapy to prescribe a patient who might have cancer. And, uh, and so that's, really fundamentally important because if we're not making optimal decisions, if we're subject to what behavioral economists would call predictably irrational ways of making decisions, then that leaves us with an opportunity to improve the way that we deliver healthcare 
and get more health out of the same amount of effort and out of the same amount of resources and costs that we invest. Hmm, interesting. So for clinicians, it's kind of about using some of these principles and choice architecture design to optimize performance and deliver better care using the same or maybe even fewer resources or costs. That's right. And some of this is just a basic recognition that we are vulnerable to these kinds of decision errors. And one of the questions you might ask is, so how do we know it's a decision error in the first place? Like, isn't that mm. a pretty strong statement? And, and the way that the discipline has evolved is, what if I ask you, you know, what are your values? What are your preferences? What are you trying to achieve? And then I measure the decisions that you make against your own values. In fact, I could even ask you to judge whether you made the right decision or not. Hmm. And, and so this is not about society or a researcher or some third party coming around saying, hey, you made a mistake. This is a decision error. This is you yourself measuring yourself against the same values and preferences that you told me maybe a day ago. And then you turn around and say, gosh, I didn't actually achieve what I wanted to achieve. That's what we're calling a decision error. And you might do that because there's so much information in the environment or so many choices that it's hard to make the optimal choice. And, uh, and so that's what we mean by decision error. I think it's really important to clarify that. So it's not a judgy thing. You know, we're not judging people for what they do. It's rather using their own values and preferences as the litmus test. And then trying to help clinicians or patients actually make better decisions, like helping them quit smoking, helping clinicians not over-prescribe antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And let me give you another example. So uh, this is a very hopefully simple but elegant example. And so I used to be a primary care doctor. I would see patients, you know, every 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, whatever the visit demanded. But it's a lot of patients. And you are processing new information, you're looking at their histories, you're looking at the new information coming in, it's, it's exhausting. And there is a behavioral economics principle called limits of willpower, which is basically humans have a finite amount of willpower or effort that they can deliver. And at some point they start to get whittled down and exhausted. And so when we look at primary care doctors and see are they more likely to prescribe an opioid or are they more likely to prescribe an antibiotic to a patient who might not really need it? Well, it happens late in the morning, right before a lunch break, a lot more than it does with the first patient of the day. Hmm. Or it happens at that 4.30 p.m. or 5 p.m. appointment a lot more frequently than it does, say, at the 1.30 p.m. appointment. And so just having a recognition that we're vulnerable to these types of, we can call them biases or heuristics or vulnerabilities, whatever word we want to use, that's important. That itself, just that recognition is important. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that clinicians or their organizations or employers kind of instinctively understand what those are? How do we identify each clinician's, you know, preference or, or propensity to err and standardize that to make sure that they can be held accountable. Is that on the part, is that the role of their organization to identify or is that 
every clinician kind of individually doing that work? That's a great question. So let's take a step back and say, well, how do we define, you know, what we're, what are the practices that, that we think are good in the first place? So in medicine and in healthcare, we have the benefit of strong professional norms or professional guidelines. Mm -hmm. So the American College of Cardiology, you know, it comes out and says, here's when you should do angioplasty and put a stent in somebody's heart. Here's when you shouldn't. Here's when the time uh, where it's appropriate to give a patient a statin medication to lower their cholesterol, and here's when it's not. So there are very detailed guidelines. You may be familiar, especially in the context of COVID, with C- the CDC does this for vaccinations. Mm-hmm. The United States Preventative Services Task Force, that's a mouthful, USPSTF, mm-hmm. does this for cancer screening, right? So there are strong and detailed guidelines out there that set up the norms. So I, as a physician, I still practice medicine. I am judged against those guidelines and I'm judged against those norms. And so thankfully, in a sense, an organization or a professional society, or even my peers, we're not always searching for figuring out, well, what's right and what's wrong, right? Oftentimes we, we know what the guidelines are and we're trying to execute against them. And that's where organizations can use this data Individuals can use this data. And in fact, in the context of research and practice, we have developed my research group and and a a private company that I started. We use peer feedback. We use data about how I measure up relative to my peers as a very effective way to, to inform clinicians, but also to influence them to improve their practice. And But it all starts with the fact that we have evidence, we have guidelines, we have norms. That's really fundamentally important. And that differentiates medicine and healthcare from a lot of other settings where, you know, we might be in much more of a vacuum when it comes to information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about value-based care? Because I think a lot of the standards and guidelines that you're talking about apply across the board in the mainstream fee-for-service model. But it's to date mostly optional for providers and payers, at least commercial payers, to engage in value-based care, which is driving better outcomes for patients at a reduced cost and you know, bearing some risk and responsibility for their care. So is behavioral economics especially important or apply specifically to value-based care since in a way it's kind of optional and you need those additional incentives to really drive uh, performance? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I would say regardless of what payment environment or payment system we're in, behavioral economics principles, right, this kind of psychology of how people make decisions, and economic decisions is at play, right? So I think step one, does it apply? Absolutely, it applies. Now, you might ask the question, and I think you kind of did, which is, so is it more important for value-based care or not? And I would highlight one thing that you mentioned. You said when you defined value-based care, you mentioned that the provider, whether it's a hospital or a physician group or a clinician, that they're bearing some responsibility for the cost and the quality that is ultimately produced, right, from the healthcare. Mm-hmm. And And so that responsibility actually dials up 
the importance of these behavioral economic principles, because suddenly I'm not just producing a transactional service. I'm not trying to just produce the same thing over and over again. Now I am trying to understand all the different circumstances of my patients. The amount of information that I need explodes. The amount of interventions, if you will, that I need to get a good outcome explode in number. And so it's a much more challenging problem from a systems perspective, but also from just a human decision-making perspective. That's a very challenging place to be, especially as a, again, human who has to interpret a lot of information and and translate that into action. And and value-based programs themselves, unfortunately, have also illustrated some design flaws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of those design flaws that exist that you think applying some of these behavioral economics principles or understanding might help uh, mitigate? Sure. So one of the simplest, in some sense, most elegant examples is how payment actually happens in value-based payment models, in particular, how the value part gets implemented. Okay. So what do I mean by that? So if you think about our traditional fee-for-service system, right? I do something, I give somebody a shot, I get paid to give that shot. Mm -hmm. I see somebody for a flu for the flu, I bill for a flu visit, I get paid for that. So I do something, I get paid. I do something, I get paid. Seems pretty straightforward. And actually, if you think about it from a more visceral kind of uh, lower part of our brain, think about the midbrain here for a second. You know, I do something and I get rewarded. I do something and I get rewarded. Okay, so that trains me. The more I do this something, the more I get paid. And therefore, there's a tight link in my head, Hmm. right? Now, if we take a step back and think about how most value-based payment models work, I'm taking care of a population for a whole year as a primary care doctor, and sometimes they're getting admitted to the hospital, sometimes they're not. I'm actually making money when stuff doesn't happen because I'm saving dollars. So when my patient doesn't go to the hospital, I'm actually doing good right? That's hard to know. How do I know when my patient's not doing something that they would have otherwise done? And then the financial element of this is at the end of the year, Medicare or whichever health insurer totals up the tab and it takes a while to do all this. And then like April or May of the next year, they say, aha, guess what, Dr. Navathe, you did really well this year. I'm going to cut you a bonus check for X thousand dollars or Dr. Navathe, sorry, you had a bad year. You're going to actually have to pay me back $3,000 or whatever it is. And so you can see the design flaws here, right? So it's really hard, one, from a payment perspective to link the payment with the behavior, which is kind of Pavlovian, right? This is not something that's that new, but it illustrates a principle in behavioral economics called immediacy, which is immediate rewards and penalties are much more motivating from a psychological perspective. And in very, very traditional neoclassical Adam Smith type of economics, we don't worry about that, right? At the end of the day, if you get the reward, you get the reward. And it doesn't matter if it's today or if it's 15 months from now. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of this is it becomes very hard to observe what I'm doing to generate non-events, right? To generate a lack of a hospitalization, a lack of a readmission, a surgery that was averted, 
Those are really hard things to make concrete to deliver to a clinician, especially not in an immediate type of form, right? So these are some of the structural challenges, but then also to some extent, some of the program flaw, design flaws, program design flaws that we have in value-based payments to date. I think there are efforts now to try to improve that, uh, but I would say over the past decade, more programs than not have reflected these kinds of design challenges. Mm-hmm. And are you saying that these kind of retroactive payments lose efficacy in convincing providers to continue operating in a value-based way? I think to some extent they do because it creates a lot of uncertainty over the course of the performance year, right? Say 2022, I'm going to get paid out for that in June of 2023. Mm -hmm. The whole year that 2022 is happening, I feel a sense of uncertainty around that. And I think more perhaps than the payment delay itself, that uncertainty is very uncomfortable. And, And I think it's made it hard for smaller groups to participate. And I, I do think, to your point, I think that has been a friction point on you know, mass participation in value-based payments. Hmm. Interesting. So would behavioral economics apply here? You mentioned immediacy. Do you see organizations changing the way that they pay out providers when they're operating in these types of contracts? Absolutely. And so there, there are, there really has developed an industry of largely private sector companies that have tried to fill in this middle layer. We, we, in the industry, I think we've started to call this enablement companies, either value enablement or physician enablement, these enablement companies play this really important role in being that link between the large value-based payment program design that is that is really designed for big organizations that aren't going to have the same heuristics like an individual would. But then they're translating that down to the day-to-day practice because at the end of the day, rank and file clinicians, you know, clinicians like myself on the front lines we're doing this one patient at a time, one human at a time. We're not doing this at scale, thinking about hundreds of thousands of patients at the same time. Mm-hmm. Are these um, behavioral economics principles, do they, are they effective across the board for any organization? Or is this a more customized process where certain principles will apply for certain organizations or providers, depending on their behavior, but not others? So that itself is a very important question. I think on one hand, I would say, Look, the reason, in fact, that there was a Nobel Prize in psychology, really, that was awarded to in, uh, in economics was because this is just a very general thing. This applies to just humans generally. So on one hand, I would say, yeah, you know what? Any organization should be thinking about how to apply these principles. Uh, on the other hand, I would say it has to be done with some expertise. It has to be done with some knowledge of the contextual factors. Because what we have seen in some organizations that have tried to bring behavioral economics to the front lines is it can backfire if not done well. Because if you get the context slightly wrong, 
and then try to develop, to deliver an intervention that's supposed to help somebody make a choice that they think is better. It can be, you can, you can immediately see how a little bit of contextual difference can change the decision in, in a high stakes environment, like an emergency department, for example, and deciding whether to give somebody a pain medication, send them out the door that could be addictive or not. Right. So, so that context is really fundamentally important. The second piece is trying to understand whether there's a heuristic being used where there's that so-called decision error happening. Because if we don't really have an issue around a heuristic or decision error, then it calls into question why we would use a behavioral economic intervention in the first place. Well, that's really insightful advice. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk about this with you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about everything you just heard at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, instead of sharing a new segment, I'll be playing some of my favorites that you might have missed. So tune in then and every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.